everyone, it's Lou Rosenfeld. Welcome to another installation of the Rosenfeld Review podcast series. It's March 24th, 2016, and I am talking with Dan Klein. Hi, Dan. Hey, Lou. Great to have you on board for the podcast. Dan and I um, have this interesting thing in common uh, with uh, only a couple other people who you should probably be able to figure out who they are. Uh, Dan uh, has a company uh, with Bob Royce called The Understanding Group. It's an IA consultancy based in Michigan. Um, I used to have a company called Argus Associates, uh, an IA consulting group based in Michigan back uh, 15 years, 20 years ago. So we have that in common. Uh, Why do you have an IA consulting group in Michigan, Dan? How did that happen? Well, I think I can trace it back to the first day that I met you, which was a meeting that we had uh, on the sidewalk of a cafe in Ann Arbor. And I was working with the graphic design and branding agency who was a partner with Argus, and I had just been hired. And uh, I, for some, somehow had not uh, been aware of Argus or how big you had grown um, and the nature of what you all did. And being read into that in this one meeting um, with you and Peter sitting across the table, I had a little bit of a, a panic attack is probably too strong of a characterization, but I had some palpitations because I felt like I might be on the wrong side of the table. And, uh, and, and so that's where, uh, my, uh, encounter with the idea that, uh, people who are making the complex clear, people who are bringing lots of rigor to language and meaning that those could be, uh, working with a name that I'd never heard before called information architects and that uh, it doesn't replace the things I'd already heard about, which is web design, webmaster at the time, a graphic designer, et cetera, that this was something important that had its own name and it had these, uh, this growing army of uh, consultants in Ann Arbor who got paid to do that. Well, and uh, I don't know that you ever want to be on the same side of the table with me, just as a, a general rule of thumb, but uh, I'm, I'm glad, uh, for, well, I am thankful, first of all, that you know someone is carrying the, the torch uh, in that part of the world for IA. I'm very grateful, and uh, uh, I'm really very impressed with the work that you guys have been doing. Um, but I also, um, I'm grateful to you uh, for being one of a, a few people who's really pushed IA forward in the last few years. Uh, in some respects, by going backward to um, what Richard Saul Werman uh, brought to the vision of IA, uh, which is really about understanding. I, I think Peter and I really started off looking at findability, and uh, you've been bringing uh, understandability uh, into the conversation. And, and frankly, with the fourth edition of the Polar Bear book, uh, the, the, the real big contributor there is Jorge Arango. Uh, who really kind of married those two threads into the new edition with help from people like yourself as technical reviewers? Well, Jorge is, um, he's instrumental to anything that I know about uh, information architecture and certainly about the architecture part in particular. Uh, Somebody who used to work with you at Argus, uh, Chris Farnham, uh, at the IA Summit in 2009 in Memphis, Peter Morville, who uh, took me on as a mentee from that day that I met the both of you at that lunch forward and uh, 
four or five years forward from that meeting, he encouraged me to go to the IA summit and thought that I would benefit from that. So um, I found an employer who would pay for me to go to that. And one of the first people that I saw in the hotel lobby bar um, as a complete newcomer to that community, uh, I was happy to see a familiar face with Chris Farnham. And uh, it was time to walk to the opening reception from the hotel. And uh, as we were walking, I was walking with Chris, uh, safety with the person, the, one of the few people that I knew. And he pointed to some chaps who were on the sidewalk ahead of us. And he said, yeah, you're interested in, in architecture, aren't you? Uh, those two guys up ahead of us are both trained as architects and they practice in information architecture. And it was Jorge Arango and uh, Andrea Resmini walking together. And uh, I very rudely uh, barged into their conversation, whatever they were talking about. And uh, from that from that meeting of those guys and seeing that there are people who do this kind of work who bring training in architecture from the built environment as their primary uh, lens, that was really exciting to me because I hadn't met anybody like that before. And I think your characterization is dead on. Uh, after that summit and after Jesse James Garrett's amazing closing plenary where he said there's no such thing as information architects, uh, I did go backward. I figured that the architecture stuff that I was interested in um, was not uh, going to be present as much as I would like if I was to stay in the contemporary practice and move forward, my sense was to get at the architecture part, I would need to work backward and uh, spent a lot of time back there trying to uh, uh, interpret for use today things that architects know and have known for a long time. Well, and I, I think also the, the fact that you've been able to really serve as something of a Boswell for Merman has, has been really a gift for us. You know, it's not all, I mean, his books are fantastic, but it's not, sometimes we do need some interpretation. And I, I think you've uh, really, you know, done many people a service, as well as Worman himself, by helping bring his ideas to the fore and keep them there and and uh, uh, make them even more accessible. He really um, can be taken at face value when he says, says and has said on many occasions that he has no interest in what any of the rest of us might do or think. And um, I think that is one of the reasons why uh, the ability to benefit from wh what he knows and the practices he has developed for himself, part of why that took some work of somebody going back and retrieving it and bringing it forward is the sincere absence of uh, an effort on his part to start a movement or get people working in the same, he truly doesn't care. And I think the opposite problem characterizes the work of Christopher Alexander, uh, to whom a lot of my research focus has shifted, although I'm, I'm still uh, eyeball, eyeballs deep in Wormanalia as well. But the difference with Alexander, and I feel a similar opportunity to um, interpret for use in the work that we do in our industry, uh, bringing some of that out of uh, his body of work, much like Mr. Werman having written over 90 books and that being almost like a barricade to the ideas because there's too many of them. Uh, Christopher Alexander has written too much 
and uh, encompassing the totality of his work is it it takes a lot, and uh, I'm trying to do that now, and uh, it's really hard. But but one key difference is Alexander really would like to start a movement, would really like for his way of seeing and working to be understood and practiced by others, where uh, Werman truly doesn't care. So why has Werman spoken to the information architecture community at the IA summit and uh, you know, so he's been at least a, a, a minimal presence, but not Alexander. Um, Is that just an accident of, of, of no, program I don't development? Think so. I don't think so. I heard an apocryphal story, and if you have a chance to talk with uh, Peter Mareholz, uh, ask him about this. Maybe I'm misremembering it. But I think that the uh, it was either the IA Institute or the IA Summit folk did try to get Werman at one point, and uh, it didn't work out for some reason. Well, that was me a couple times, but that's oh, another story. Okay. <laughs> yep. uh, and the happy accident of his 75th birthday happening to be in the year 2010, I believe, and he had already sort of made a statement publicly that uh, he would say yes to any speaking engagement that year where typically he doesn't, I suggested to the IA Summit organizers based on what was a budding relationship that I was developing with him that he be invited and because it was his 75th birthday year he said yes. I'm not aware that anybody in our community uh, reached out to Alexander to see if he was interested in engaging with us directly, uh, but there were many attempts by people in technology to connect up with and try to understand what he was doing. In 1996, there's a video on the internet of a 1996 talk he gave to the object-oriented programming group of Los Angeles, I believe is what it was called. So there, there have been attempts by people in technology to leverage Alexander, and uh, I believe a uh, few of them have bore fruit, um, but he is unfortunately, uh, he's 83 years old and he is not well enough to engage uh, these types of things. Otherwise, I would have done everything possible to bring him closer to our community because I do think, you know, there's a risk of what I'm doing as being seen as sort of star fucking or uh, celebrity. Uh, I, I there's a risk of it being interpreted like that. I hope not. Um, I, you know, I, I'll jump in and just say I, I, I that's actually never crossed my mind in particular, and and uh, I've never heard anyone put it that way. And uh, I was actually just going to say you're in an important position of being something of a a go between uh, uh, between some really rich ideas and a community of practice. Uh, I'm I'm really interested to know how you put them all together. If you have the ear of people, not just in the IA community, but in the UX world, how do you synthesize some of these, uh, the ideas that are coming from these deep dives into Werman and Alexander and, and others that I'm sure you've been looking into? In, in 60 words or fewer. In, in 60, 60 words or fewer. From the back of your book. Well, I'm fine. Whenever it, you write one. Uh, well, that's a whole nother kettle of fish. Uh, I find it, to not be difficult at all to find relevant uh, mappings. And um, when I present these things, 
I uh, get consistently two different kinds of feedback. Uh, one species of the feedback is, uh, this is all still so theoretical. How does this apply to what we do? And then less of the feedback, but it, it still happens fairly frequently, is I understand this. It seems to be ready-made for use in our context. It's just that our context didn't uh, co-emerge with these ideas during their time. So uh, depending on how you practice and what your prior uh, training looks like maybe or sort of how you're put together, I think some of these things uh, are ready-made and don't require a lot of interpretation and aren't highly theoretical. But uh, of course, that's my gloss on it and I get a lot of uh, counter uh, uh, arguments that you know that's still very theoretical and I don't understand how well, you know let the listener be the judge but what are some of those things um, well on the Alexander side it would be um, asking questions about space Alexander is not parsimonious or precious or anything like that about what people might call architectonic space or if you want to talk about you know like brick and mortar or atoms physical he doesn't do much to emphasize any distinctions between physical space and other kinds of space and there are a few instances where he even suggests that uh the ideas that he's working on in the built environment uh, lend themselves to digital environments um but the idea that space isn't neutral, his sincerely held, uh, written about for 27 years in a four-volume work I'm, I'm, I'm choking on right now called the, the Nature of Order, he lays out a lifetime of work arguing that you can't just do it any particular, you just can't do it any old way. That space isn't neutral. Well, what does and it mean for space to, to not be neutral? If it's not neutral, then what is it? It means that you could follow principles that are universal and that there's a right way to configure the elements that you are working with relative to one another in space that will bring them to life and that there are far more ways of arranging the elements in space that where they would remain dead. So the idea that, for example, with cellular life, that the components of cells and the proteins within them and, and so forth are arranged in a certain way that actually does make them literally alive. Yes. Uh, and uh, you, you arrange them in almost any other way and they don't live. Uh, and so taking that same idea and applying it to just about anywhere, is that what Alexander is suggesting, that there are these similar configurations or orders that yes. are sort of beneath the surface waiting for us to, to find them out? Yes. And the parts that we in our community of his work that we are most fluent with are the parts that he uh, talks about as having been uh, partially or maybe even entirely a failure. The work that he and his colleagues did on pattern language uh, as a way to get at if if space isn't neutral, if there are patterns in the way that people, uh, you know, 
abide in space and in places that are good for us and that there is a limited number of those that we could understand and that we could uh, address as patterns. He feels like most of that work, uh, both when he and his colleagues at CES uh, were pursuing it and when he's observed the work of others in trying to apply The Timeless Way of Building and Pattern Language, those two books from the 70s, uh, he finds the results to rarely have this uh, quality of life in them. And so the latter part of his work, the latter 27 years of it, the nature of order, uh, he works through and demonstrates in interesting ways 15 properties of geometric space that are uh, necessary in order to make make space, make objects in space come alive and have a quality of life in them. So are you now trying to take that, that concept of, of order, of, of like a natural order, and um, maybe pick up where Alexander may have left off and, and apply them in digital spaces? It could be information spaces. It could be digital plus physical. Uh, I mean, is that kind of what yeah. you would like to pursue? And I would, and I am. And uh, uh, Andrea Resmini talks about uh, sort of a blended space that is uh, where you, the distinctions between digital and physical aren't really um, where it's at. And so trying to apply, trying to test out these kinds of ideas from the work that Alexander and others have done. And I've uh, made a point of visiting as many of his built works as I can. Um, I am in coordination with his wife and his children and the Center for Environmental Structure. I really want to, um, I want to apply these teachings in the kinds of work that we do. And the concept underneath it that I think will make it uh, possible or uh, even desirable is that all of this work that Alexander has done is predicated on the idea of wholeness. And uh, the standard of wholeness, when applied to the kinds of work that you and I do for you know big companies with huge information systems, to ask them to tell you about an experience that they offer to people where you could say with a straight face that wholeness is the way that you would characterize what happened with and for them. Uh, I'm not sure that we have made anything yet in digital that would um, stand up to um, a criterion of wholeness as what good means. And, uh, and, and that, so I think that may be one What's the way into this? Uh, talking about the ability to, like Alexander says, make God appear in a field if you know how to use these properties. I don't think that's probably the way to start. But if we started talking about wholeness as a normative criteria for our work, I think we can get into a space where what Alexander does is highly relevant. Well, you're talking about wholeness, but you you kind of entered this part of the conversation talking about making things come alive. Yes. I don't think, I think they're related, but I'm guessing they're not the same thing. 
Uh, for Alexander, he has struggled. Uh, so if, if you recall or ever sort of brushed up against the book, uh, The Timeless Way of Building from back in the late 70s, back then he didn't want to give it a name. He called it the quality without a name. And uh, as of today, there is a synonymy between wholeness, life, and beauty. In his teachings, those concepts are interchangeable and synonymous. I'm surprised that Yahweh is, is not... It's one of the barriers to reasonable people engaging seriously with this body of work is it, it's fundamentally about cosmology and ideology. And what I understand of it, it is not incompatible with Zen Buddhism or uh, the mystical traditions of Islam or Christianity or uh, Judaism. But it is uh, talking about spirituality as, and uh, even more controversially maybe than spirituality, uh, our feelings as first-class citizens, uh, first principle uh, concerns in any work that we do to make new things in the environment. I wanted to add to your list of religions magic. Yeah. Uh, the way that he talks, and, and so one of the things about pattern language that uh, remains uh, sort of active for him is the belief that in order for us to make good structure, which for him would be living, beautiful, whole structure in the environment, that uh, in order to do that, you need to get the language right first. And uh, many of his colleagues in architecture despise him and his work and think his buildings are ugly and old-fashioned and uh, impossible to build. Um, but a lot of that uh, antipathy toward him, I believe, comes from a, uh, a concern that what he's uh, talking about is like a spell or like witchcraft or magic because he really believes that if you have the right words, uh, that you can generate the good structure from the good language. And, and how is that any different from an incantation? Well, maybe the, the, the difference between those architects and, and Alexander is they may be more concerned. Um, each one may be thinking, what do I believe to be beauty? And, Maybe why Alexander appeals to, to many people in our field and, and user experience is that he sounds like he's talking about what do we find to be beauty. Yes. Uh, and that's an important distinction. Now, you were just talking about language, and I want to bring it back to what you referred to a moment ago. You, you are working with large organizations that are, are grappling with information challenges. I don't suspect you use exactly the same language that you were just sharing with us <laughs> in your sales presentations or even in necessarily training your staff. How do you bring it back to the day-to-day the -day environment of doing IA work? I have the extraordinary good fortune to have a teaching gig with the University of Michigan School of Information, which uh, is your alma mater, if the listeners don't, don't know that already. It's an up-and-coming school. Yeah. yeah. And so I am able to use my class as a R&D lab, for, for lack of, of a better way to talk about it. 
And so I'm able to spend a lot of time and uh, outsource the processing of a lot of complicated ideas to these brilliant graduate students, uh, 30 or 40 of them. And then uh, I try to set up a sort of a virtuous cycle between the laboratory environment of the classroom and the commercial environment of the consulting business. And you're absolutely right. There is stuff going on in my investigation of Alexander that if I talked about it the way that we just uh, spoke, would uh, that would be a door closer, not a door opener. So from the what are the things that we do say, I believe they are not in conflict with the things that we don't say. And I, it's not like a... Uh, a contradiction or a, you know or a, a mullet approach where it's business up front but then we have this weird uh, Alexandrian party in the back the way that we talk to customers and the way that we situate the value proposition is your digital places they need to be attended to with at least as much uh, care sustainable focus budget people as the physical spaces that you use to conduct business. And uh, that's something that a lot of the people we talk with have never heard. The non-metaphorical uh, analogy that uh, places made of information ought to be and can be operated with at least as much purposeful design architecture uh, etc. as the company headquarters building that is, uh, I, I assure you that the little guy uh, with the shovel, the under construction part of the website that we're okay with that being a thing, uh, in the company headquarters right off of the lobby, which is where in cyberspace that under construction page is situated, we, we wouldn't accept so many of the dysfunctional aspects of digital uh, if the framing were, if you just equalized the frame and said, this is a place where we do business, and our business considers space as a tool to help us achieve our strategy. Uh, so if you're Apple, you've got the most profitable by the square foot retail space ever constructed by man, I guarantee you that they are not using the same uh, yardstick for, is this good? For the Apple Store online, whichever one you want to talk about, uh, compared with the one that they use for a physical space like uh, that beautiful Apple Store right off of Central Park in Manhattan or, uh, or any of their physical retail. Dan, it's so interesting to me. Uh, this conversation in general, I wish we could continue it a lot longer. Maybe we'll have to have part two and, and three and four at some point. Anytime. But uh, you, you leave me thinking in full circle to, um, in a sense, to the, the first edition of um, the Polar Bear book uh, that Peter and I wrote. Uh, I think we uh, gave some uh, time to the use of metaphors and organizing principles, specifically place as an example of metaphor, uh, and uh, said it can get you so far, but be careful, don't go too far. Metaphors break down quickly and become constraining very quickly. And But what you're making me see, and, and, uh, and I really appreciate it, is that place nowadays in digital 
parlance, it doesn't really have to be a metaphor any longer. It actually, we actually are talking about places and then we're no longer talking about places metaphor and, and suffering on the, under the constraints of metaphor. We're actually really developing places and that's really exciting. So thank you for reconnecting me to something that excited me quite a bit in 1995 or six when we were thinking really heavily about this. And uh, I, I kind of felt like I had to leave behind as the metaphorical aspect of place broke down. I'm so grateful to what you and Peter have done to make a commercial practice out of information architecture that a lot of people could do. Uh, Werman would never have done that. And the evolutionary steps that are necessary to go from what is commercially viable and important to uh, business changes. And I don't think Tug, my company, using the value proposition that we now use and talking in the terms that we now speak in, I don't believe we could have a sustainable business uh, if we were doing that in 1998 or 2002. So uh, the continuity that we can uh, see from Werman all the way forward to the present day, I don't see that as uh, separate movements or uh, version one, version two, version three, so much as um, an evolutionary process and uh, somebody has to be a creator. And, uh, and for me, that's you and Peter, and I'm deep, deeply grateful. Oh, thank you. And uh, well, um, I, I appreciate that, but I think you're really, you and a number of other folks are, are really pushing the field forward, and, and uh, I'm so happy to see you doing it. Um, uh, I'm ready for a break anyway. Uh, I'm ready to be put out to pasture, but um, I, I do think the fact that you can use language that uh, uh, gets closer to um, beauty to talk about what information architecture can bring is, you know, largely the, the product of your own labor. So, uh, uh, you know, I, I'll give you a big pat on the back and, and uh, ask that you continue. And uh, I look forward to stopping by the office uh, next time uh, I'm back in my old home turf. Thanks, Dan Klein, for joining us today. And uh, uh, we'll look forward to continuing the conversation. Such a pleasure, Lou. Thank you. And, and you are welcome uh, at either of our Michigan-based offices uh, anytime you like, including sleepovers, uh, if that becomes necessary anytime. Oh, I've slept in IA offices before. I don't know, <laughs> under desks. I, I think I'll pass, but thanks anyway. Take care, Dan. Thanks again for joining us. You're welcome.